Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. James Pomeroy is the Global Health and Safety Leader and Director for Arup. He is a true professional risk engineer who has a deep knowledge of his own subject areas, together with a practical understanding of how this can bring real benefits to clients. An engineer by training, James has been involved in leading and transforming global HS&D programs for over 20 years. Hi James, great to see you again. One of the things which we talked about was how you viewed the pandemic and um, how organisations that maybe weren't agile enough um, had suffered during that period. So just really wanted to start on that one really. So let's jump straight in and uh, and, and, and let you have your say on, on that because it's really interesting. Yeah, thanks Mike. I think um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in the pandemic globally from the outset, involved very early on in dealing with the situation in Wuhan and China, where in my former role, we had quite a few personnel. Um, I was also involved for the preceding kind of two to three years in putting in place business continuity and disaster recovery plans um, and really kind of bring a, a degree of agility to the business. And when I look back nearly two years since the pandemic um, took hold and equally to the work that it did previously, I think there are some big kind of lessons there. Um, and I think I would kind of draw them into into eight elements that I would happily kind of take you through in terms of what I think they mean for for the safety profession and particularly some of the things that we think about and some of the things w- which we train people on. Mm, that's really good. And I think this whole thing about disaster recovery and having the understanding about what could happen is it's really very challenging when you don't think this thing will ever happen so you having been ahead of the game must have been great to see how it all unfolded so yeah so please inform us yeah i mean i think you know it was eisenhower who said that you know a a plan doesn't survive first contact and planning is really important and this i think there's something that we miss in that sometimes so in in the focus to kind of proceduralize and process and have systems and to meet things which are auditable we have a big focus on on the physical artifact namely the plan what i think we often miss is the concept of planning and i think they are intrinsically linked, but I think they are two separate things. So, for example, you know, training people to deal, to be agile, to be responsive is similar, but not necessarily the same as documenting down a 50, 60 page plan. And I think back to the your opener, I think there were many businesses that actually put in place very large um, plans, procedures to deal with incidents, including governments for that matter, and they didn't survive first contact. So I think there's something really interesting there that actually which particular organizations and safety professions or were in organizations that survived and were able to respond and which struggled. And I think I've heard different stories from different individuals. And one of them is around going to a fixed plan, focusing on process and documenting things down and doing that too much, I think actually was um, didn't help organizations. And conversely, those that developed a concept on planning, agility, um, actually survived particularly well. So what I'm getting here is that if we're saying that documentation isn't the thing, because but actually there are behaviours which we default to because our insurer will say, have you got one of those? Show me, prove it, do those sorts of things. What you're, are you advocating that what we should do is we should do more scenario activity in terms of training? Let's see what it would be like. How would we behave? Yeah, I, I think, well, f- firstly, implicit in your question is the need to demonstrate that in itself is a problem. So auditors and insurers, we can often lose sense within safety about who is the audience we're targeting. Um, and, you know, the need to demonstrate to an auditor, to an external body insurer is important, but it shouldn't become the overriding, <clears throat> the dominant thing that we think that's what we need to do. 
But I think there's something else here, which is if we had planned for the pandemic in the classic way that we do within safety, we'd have probably had 10 committees, about two years of, of thought, and it would have resulted in 200 pages of documentation. And many organisations did that, and I don't think it was particularly effective. So what am I saying to your question? We need things which are more agile. We need to think about the concept of agility versus the alternate which we have, which is rigidity. So when you have a plan, you, you, it's, it's based on the PDCA model. You define what could happen. You then put in interventions. You lock it down through control processes. And then you use audit to, to say that's the way it should be. I don't know any organizations that actually approached it in that classic way and survived. I think most of them tore up that plan pretty much within the first day or week. So what we're saying is it's not that you don't need planning, but you need to think about how how are you in terms of the agility? How quickly can you um, flip? I know businesses that went from having a physical service function to having a, um, a remote inspection. I know training organizations that completely reinvented themselves overnight. They didn't have a plan for it, but they managed to do it. And what does that tell us about these two two opposite ideas about rigidity versus agility. So, so on that on that basis, when you when you think about this whole documentation, the classic way of doing it, are you advocating and you is your approach uh, as a global leader in health and safety is about how can you um, act in a way which actually meets the requirement, but isn't in a in a structured way that we all sort of want to have it in boxes and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I think we need things that are far more lean. We're about to move into a whole further process of disruption, namely climate change and the tragic events we've seen over the past few weeks, which we don't really know the the, the full implications of them. We can't really predict these things. So this idea about plan, do, check, act is, is fundamentally problematic. We, what's missing in there is the idea about we'll start to forecast, then start to your point to scenario plan, don't get so obsessed about the artifact of, of having a plan and think more about planning. I mean, when we look at organizations that are in the high reliability sector like aviation, they put a huge amount of focus on scenario testing. They call it simulation, putting pilots through simulation. And organizations that have survived pretty, pretty well out the pandemic are those that did um, scenario planning and modeling, but probably put less focus on documenting it down. It's it's the glue that builds teams together that enables them to respond. Yeah, that's no, so really helpful. And I think that sort of will give um, the listeners some comfort that you, you think you need to think in different ways because sometimes the organizational structure, which is one of the things I've got a whole list of stuff here, James, I want to ask you, but the uh, but this thing about organizational changes is, is, a, is, a, is a, an important part of this because you, you can't have control over that because you will have people and leaders come and go and all those sorts of things and you think the documentation is going to survive it, but it, it often doesn't. So I think that's very comforting for practitioners to hear from somebody of, of, um, of your standing. Yeah, I think there's really two things that if I boil it down from what we've said, the first is is actually think about who the audience is that you're producing this for. Um, so really challenge yourself and say, is it for the benefit of the organization or is it to demonstrate something to those outside the organization? And if so, do you, is there real value in going to that nth um, degree? And then I think, as you said, the second part of this is really focus on the concept of planning and then think about what are the, what are the elements of rigidity within your organization. So some organizations that are production orientated or have a frontline, a uh, lot of frontline workers, well, that may be difficult to create agility, but perhaps cross-training may be something you can do or perhaps looking at technology. For, for those of us who, who are fortunate and privileged to be able to work from home, then the ability to flip and disperse your workforce so they can work fully remotely, but that equally creates another dependency, which is the technology that we're using now. So by reducing one risk of being based in an office or a location, suddenly you create another. But that, that's part of the scenario planning and modeling that I think we need to get into more. Yeah, before we go back to the, the points which you wanted to um, share with us on this, I just wanted to explore something for myself personally, is that 
I've, I've worked in um, chemical industry for a while and there was this distinction between uh, process and practice and the distinction between something which was safety critical where you would actually follow this particular thing because you could not do it any other way and you could then go and look and check and see and, you know you have that assurance around it to the other one where there was a practice around something is that is that a similar sort of approach that you're talking about here that you know for certain things you need that process and for others you've got practices which you work around and you've got sort of themes in there which protect and um, protect people from harm and make sure that there is a safe system Yes, I think that's really interesting what you're raising there. So there's certain elements around safety, business continuity, where we will need processes to be locked down. There is a need to define some things because there isn't an alternate and the alternate is doing it wrong and things going badly wrong. But for many, actually, it's about tacit knowledge. It's about skill. So can we move towards principles and frameworks that provide people a guideline? I think you're hitting on you know something that's dear to my heart which is we we proceduralize too much and so how do we provide guidelines and frameworks to enable safe decision making to happen putting in some boundaries there but not over prescribing but equally in some alter some situations there may be no alternate that we may need to have it completely locked down but that is actually quite rare there are not that many in many organizations because most are not operating in the really high risk sector such as chemicals and power supply most are not doing that so therefore how do we get this balance right between providing guidance and adaptation for individuals who've got skills and then in other situations really locking it down for the reasons that we talked about so let's go back to the what you what were your findings from your observations during the deployment of the the, the plan or the planning and the and what you saw in that process associated with the pandemic so i think this concept of organizational learning is really important so what we found early on was being early on in the pandemic with operations in wuhan and china the need to learn in real time and to, to, to capture those learnings and literally try and be two weeks ahead of where the pandemic was flowing from going into Asia, from going into Europe, then going into the US. So the ability to capture that through best practice models, through short little videos, so that we were pre-ordering equipment four weeks before the US went into the forms of state lockdown. We were sharing the things, we were doing blackout tests globally um, four weeks before, you know, other organizations were doing so because we realized that this was coming. Um, but we hadn't necessarily planned for that. We hadn't said, you know, in a model, this is what we need to do. It's learning in real time, listening, and then even things like well-being. We were setting up well-being support ahead of when it was necessarily needed. So did you have a challenge, though, about, you know, it's happening over there, it's nothing to do with us, it's all going to get sorted because... You know, we've seen Ebola being treated in that way and that sort of thing. Did, did, did you have a problem in actually getting that traction or getting that or being able to convince people? I think early on you can feel a bit like the Cassandra that's kind of uh, saying that there's horror happening. But I think people were sitting on the fence. There was some very early on, if we think back to, say, February um, 20, 2020, there were many who were looking at it saying, this is going to go away. It's, it's not going to hit us for the reasons that you outline. But I think equally, this the concept that I like to run, which is prudent overreaction. So if you think you've got something that's happening, react, tell people early, tell it's happening, share it, get it talked about. Don't try to suppress it or or try to say we've got this under control. So prudent overreaction leads you to then say, well, we've prepared for the worst case scenario. We've stood people up. We're doing blackout testing. We've, we're ordering protective equipment because we can see that's an, an issue in Asia. And we've started to actually you know, get people ready to start working from home ahead. But you have to, there's certainly to your point, was a period of about two weeks where people thought, well, I'm just going to carry on going on my skiing holiday. I'm going to continue to live as I want to. And we very quickly realized that this was hitting us. But I think acting early, acting prudently, and this concept of prudent overreaction, I think is particularly important. Yeah, that's my takeaway here, that prudent um, overreaction, I think, is the what, as practitioners, sometimes, um, unless you have the trust within the organization and you have the 
uh, support in the organisation. It can be that people might see that you're overreacting to something which is a risk, which other colleagues have maybe been guilty of it, where you've blown something out of proportion here. But equally, is it is it a balanced view given what you are looking at and observing? So that's a good learning from my point of view. Yeah, I, I remember it must have been about sometime end of February, about early March. I remember telling the, the global safety community to stop everything that they were doing for three months just cancel everything, initiatives, planning, training, travel, because this was going to hit them. And I remember I remember the call as if it was yesterday, just moments of silence with people saying, to your point, are you overreacting? But I was, it, we were three weeks in with China at that point. It had been two weeks into lockdown. Uh, Korea had gone into lockdown. We had people involved in, in Japan equally. And you could see that this thing was picking up. And the concept of just saying, look, what does it hurt you to cancel your training, your meetings and your travel for three months as a prudent overreaction, as opposed to just kind of bury your head in the sand and think this isn't going to happen. But you do you do have to encourage in some cases in that sense was actually telling people, you know, some people needed to be say, I'm telling you, giving you permission to cancel it and to focus 100 percent on this and I, and I think that thing then it's you know the government then takes in takes control and those things become what happened that we all observed and we saw so in some ways it's it, it's determined by that approach so legislated for but what you're talking about is how do you manage it before that because that's about you being able to sense the the risk and how would you how do you need to behave to make sure that people are being protected yes i i don't claim to have any knowledge of this i certainly didn't look ahead and see this coming you know the idea that you had to get people you had to do global back, blackout tests the, the idea that you had to work with your it teams to get people ready and and increase um, vpns because that was a restriction also that was not my knowledge or, or the organization's knowledge. It was listening to what was happening in Asia. And they were saying broadband capacity is an issue. People are complaining about, you know, the remoteness, not being able to work. We haven't got teams fully rolled out, so we need to do that. So you li literally listen to the issues and the pains that they're having and saying, right, let's think ahead two weeks and let's get everybody prepared for those things. But that's this idea about agility because... I don't think anybody, I've not met anybody who had a business continuity plan that said there will be global lockdowns because that was the thing on this idea about essential workers, that some workers were categorized as key workers, others weren't. Again, that wasn't, nobody predicted furlough programs happening across Europe, but this happened. And, and even for those who had the most advanced pandemic plans, they didn't have these sorts of things in them because, to your point, governments came across and took over control. So how do we kind of think ahead to what we think is likely to happen? And I think that's the place where um, a long time ago, I remember Phil Hughes, who was the past vice president, uh, vice president at uh, IOSH, and he, he would come in at Rosper and say to people, so why do you need the law? Because you know what principles are. Why, why do you need legislation? But sometimes it's that thing about, well, yeah, but what underpins it is you know it's the right thing to do anyway. You know, it's just saying these are the practices, you know, hierarchy of control. You know, how do you do things? How do you mitigate? How do you make sure people are capable of doing these things, etc.? So I think it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating how that all sort of rolls out. So I think, Mike, the, the kind of other area amongst kind of eight that I would talk about will be trust. So th there's a tendency in safety and risk to use the word control. And I think if there's one thing that comes from the broader issue of employment relations, it's trust. So we trusted people to work from home. We trusted them and we focused more on outcomes. So what does that mean for safety where control is written into legislation it's in our training we have we think about how we control risk and is there something i don't i don't know but i do see this these two contrasting elements between trusting and controlling i think we have a very different workforce 24 months on in many organizations and those organizations that are really thinking about empowering people trusting them which, which is about you know work is what you do it's not necessarily where you are, or, or in some cases, even when you do it, it's about outcomes-based work. Now, that's not applicable for everybody, and it won't work for all situations, of course. But I think we're finding now, as people are being encouraged to come back to normal working, 
if they haven't already done so, that there's people making life choices and decisions based on actually having had two years of being trusted to do the to based on outcome of work rather than necessarily the method and the time of work. I don't quite know what it means for safety, but it is an interesting piece about these two contrasting pieces about how much do we trust people and how much do we do we seek to control? No, but I think what it does, it, it resonates with those um, to, to, to those that are managers, that are good managers, recognise it's not about you sitting at your desk, it's about what you do and how it, how it works. And I think that is a really great move forward. And the genie's out the bottle, so you can't say you can put it back in. Um, and the other part to pick up on, I think, is this thing about... Um, you know, this trust thing is about people will make decisions about whether or not you're the type of employer where my well-being is at the heart of what you're making the decisions about. So rather than it being decisions with your head, you're doing it with your heart because you know that people need to have flexibility to you know, look after children, those sorts of things. But it's not at the detriment of what the, the person does as part of their role. Yeah, I think there's so many kind of elements here that draw in, say, diversity and inclusion are equally about creating a workforce that's based on you know outcomes and people working collectively together as i've said I'd, i'm not sure i necessarily understand what it means for safety but i do think there is something here trust is not a word that necessarily permeates through safety training i've been through various courses and professional training and there's a lot of discussion around control but not a lot of discussion around trust and i kind of wonder why is that well, I think it's that thing about, um, you know, the plan, do, check, act approach, which is, you know, you need to check. And I asked, uh, we had a podcast with um, Dr. Sean Davis about it and this thing about uh, a just culture. So no blame is, is a great concept. And to, to have that in terms of, especially when you have an event and you want to try and understand what that what happened or preceding an event, understanding what's going on. And he was sort of saying it's not about going and checking and auditing necessarily, but you have to have some sort of assurance and you can do that by all sorts of different means rather than using a big stick type approach and you're looking for bad, he was looking for good. So he's looking for good rather than it being that whole thing. So it's a bit like the one minute manager, you know, catch somebody doing something right. So uh, that's the whole thing about the, uh, you know, maybe that's what we should do rather than have it the other way around, is trying to catch people doing something wrong. Yeah, and I think equally, where do we learn from? There's a lot of learning from failure, because when things go wrong, we have to learn, we have to investigate, we have to put things right. It does beg the question about how much focus we bring on the things, you know, sharing of good practice, promoting of good practice, and actively going out and seeking that. But So I think there is something really interesting in what Sean raised there, yes. So I think I think the third point I would talk about is kind of value versus status. So one of the most interesting things for me was during the pandemic was the idea that your frontline personnel were designated by governments as key and essential. I think that's really, really interesting because for organisations, value has been driven by kind of an economic model. But once a government starts coming along and saying that your frontline staff are critical, designating them that they can they need to be out there but perhaps managers and support staff that is really interesting you know what what does it tell us as an organization when actually our frontline staff are being designated as as socially valued and well that's that's quite interesting compared to perhaps where we put the status and hierarchy in organizations I wonder whether it will lead organisations, or rather I hope it will lead organisations to, to have a return to the floor process, where they go and learn from the frontline, realise some of the challenges they've got from frontline staff, and really think more about where value exists within the organisation and where it's created. So we used to call it management by walkabout, and um, there was a, a great uh, proponent of it when I worked in the telecoms industry, and Carl Gross would take us all out, we'd do like a quality review, I'd be brought along in terms of health and safety. And it was going down and talking to clients, it's talking to customers, it was talking to the supply chain. So we'd have like 30 or 40 people. It was a big investment, but that's what it's about if you don't get into what's going on at the front line. Maybe, you know, those things that we've talked about in the past is that you do safety tours, sampling, these sorts of things, but you don't do it by remotely or sending an external why don't you do it because you're the person that's responsible how much if we take the example you've given 
How many organizations are learning from real-time experience versus dashboards and metrics? Because I think that's what it comes to. Of course, we need both. I'm setting them up as some kind of polar opposite. But how much actual learning is happening from exactly that example of going out and doing someone's job and actually learning from the challenges that they've got? And I don't I don't necessarily mean just a tour. I mean, actually going and doing the job and trying it. Um, and I think, you know, it should be incumbent upon everyone in management to go and actually learn how jobs are done. And I fear that with the drive to digital, which is which is going to happen and will bring value, that we will get further into management by representation, which I mean by metrics and procedures and and data and not necessarily by experience. So on the list of things to, to tick off as a practitioner is this um, thing about consultation, which is, you know, we all say that, you know, there's regulations that say you've got to do it and you've got to do it in certain ways depending on how you are set up as an organisation. But I think what we've just talked about might be, you know, part of what that consultation is. Meaningful, true Meaningful, yeah. yes. Yeah, because it's about you going down and consulting and looking and checking. It's not about having a safety committee and saying, tick that box. So Yeah, I, th I think it's, it. it's about going out learning. I, I call it listen and learn, um, which is actually go out and learn about some of the challenges that they've got. And we have to kind of reverse some of the ideas that the experts are the, are the ones actually managing it. The experts are the ones doing it. Um, they know many of the problems, they know the shortcuts, and it's the shortcuts that lead to accidents very often. So it's for us to try and actually discover some of that. But I think, yes, it's this process of meaningful consultation, prop, don't, not going in with a, with a policy or a proposal that's a fait accompli, where we want just to get it ratified, but where we actually want to say, does this work? But more than that, it's more than my idea and I want to consult with you, it's actually I want to learn from your experience about what works with the equipment, with the process, what worries you about perhaps the working hours, the shift patterns, the fatigue? What about this new process that we've introduced? Do, do you have concerns? So curiosity is this emotional kind of intelligence of, of empathy, curiosity, um, and just listening. I suppose from a practitioner's point of view, um, what I'd say is that um, it's great you go there as a consultant, for example, and maybe you've been in the same situation, James, and you go, and you look at something and you see what's happening, you might video it and you might go away and think about it and then you talk to the person about it. And actually, your job's made so much easier because actually they come up with a solution. And as long as you're, you've are you got that risk perception and understanding about it and it's about you're, you're saying, well, let's have that, we'll, we'll, we'll capture that because that's great. And it becomes adopted because it becomes theirs rather than it being this is the way you do it. I think if audits were reframed to become learning, and we we looked at them as a as a method of organizational learning rather than a method of checking i think if we reframed it in that sense we would learn a lot more they would be a lot more productive but but the problem with some elements of safety is they have become top down hierarchical because we're going in to check as opposed to listen to learn from those that are doing it i i don't know your job i could never come in and audit you i could if you gave me a standard and we could have an attempt at it but to be honest you're the expert that knows your job because you've been doing it for many years so there's something kind of interesting in the idea that i'm coming to check on you and i think what we need to do is reframe that dialogue to say how do we help how do we listen and be and are we curious about what some of the challenges are and the great thing, of course, is you've got a whole organisation of people which is set to do that. And it depends on whether or not that is their thing, because that's the other part about it. You don't need to have a brigade of people coming in to do this thing is that's already there. It's just changing the it's how do you get them to change their emphasis, I suppose. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think that moving then on to, to one of the fourth areas for me that's quite interesting. And this this was a, a big surprise for me. I I probably should have known it, but I didn't. Um, was this idea about evidential versus emotional? So we have some in in, in safety theory called the, th the security theatrics, which is this idea that things are in place. They don't do a lot, but they're, they're in place to make you feel comfortable. So I remember in the beginning of the pandemic saying temperature detection, 
don't, you don't need to do that. It's not evidential. There's a high proportion of people who are asymptomatic. I had people coming to me actually saying, no, we want that. We want temperature detection. I had people saying, we're going to do deep cleaning of offices. I said, there's no point. You know, it's not evidential. It's not, but you found yourself doing things that were, that were emotionally based. And then I, I, I had to change my view and, and perhaps stop being so arrogant and saying, well, the science says this, to say, well, if people feel comfortable and if that's what they want and it gives them reassurance, that's fine. That's really, that's uh, really good. Yeah, I think that uh, that whole thing about it, 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 people wanted to have something to be able to say, "I'm doing it." It's like I'm wearing my high visibility jacket. Oh, fine, but it's you know that's it's only one element of how you have a safe system of work, and um, but it's not the main thing. But I want to wear one. I want to have this thing. I think that's really, uh, really insightful. You know? I I didn't. Early on, I remember, you know, we had requests to put temperature monitoring in to do. I mean, there was at least three or four things that were, there was no science for them. But I, I had to change my view because people said, you know, they openly said, look, I know it's not scientific, but it gives people comfort. And if it gives people comfort, then it's achieved its outcome. And let's not fight about the science, you know, let's actually say what, what works for people. So I think there is something there where we get very hung up in safety about where's the data, where's the evidence for this. Some things I reflect on two years later, I think actually are there things that aren't evidential that we know don't necessarily work, but symbolically provide people with a degree of comfort or reassurance. And if they do, that's fine as long as it's not detrimental. That's really good sharing because I think that's the point about um, sometimes the you can get into this thing about it. This is, I'm saying this. I am the person that knows about it. I am the practitioner. And, and that am, was me. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the qualifications and all this sort of thing. But then you have to think, well, yeah, so good learning. Mm. I think the, the kind of the fifth thing I would say is about communication. So we, we, we tried two styles of communication. One which was, um, and, and this is particularly interesting for safety when we think about branded safety programs versus some of the messaging we give out. So we tried kind of aspirational messaging around, you know, um, look after each other, be your brother's keeper, these sorts of kind of messages. But what we found actually that was far more meaningful was actionable messaging, things that people could act on immediately. And there is something... I reflect and think about actually what style of messaging do we use within safety? Is it value-based aspirational statements that are visionary, but people struggle to say, what do they actually mean? What does a home safe program and a message like that mean versus something which is more concise, which is clearer, and people can do something with in the short term? Okay, so um, things like no accidents here or safety starts with me, what, how does that fit in or... Is that, is that like an aspirational thing? Yeah, I'd say those something? kind of things are aspirational and visionary. And I don't stand here, actually, as some kind of individual who's got, you know, say either of them are right. I just say from my lessons, things which, you know, it's the style of communication that works for the context. In the middle of an incident, you want something which people can act on, which is short term, which they can clearly understand what they need to do um, and what's been required of them maybe there's a view for something which is visionary and aspirational. If I reflect upon my career, I think, Mike, you know, 10 years ago, I was really into those branded programs with big visible vision kind of statements. I'm not sure I'm necessarily there anymore. Um, but I also think there is something about how do we think about what we communicate in certain circumstances? Because we tend to think about safety communication as being quite fixed. Um, as opposed to perhaps being a bit context dependent. What I always try and talk to my team and others about is this communication is about giving and getting understanding at the simplest level. And, um, and communication can be, I don't think it's a good idea for you to use that ladder now, which is, you know, come down, let's have a chat about it, to somebody that's in a confined or enclosed space or in an excavation, and it's like, you need to get out now, is different things for different circumstances so we touched on one of the other elements that i would talk about earlier which is about this idea about rules versus principles i i reflect particularly two years and i was probably on this journey before 
but the idea about using more principles and frameworks for certain situations and trying to minimize the use of prescription and rules for only when they're really required. I think we use too many rules and prescription in safety and that comes back to this trust versus control thing. But how do we think about how we provide more parameters and guidelines and principles and frameworks that provide people with a degree of discretion, but there are clear boundaries. Uh, I tend to think about it a bit like a swimming lane that depending upon the high risk situation, you narrow them down. And then when you've got something which requires a degree of variance, you you use more principles and frameworks that allows discretion. But I think that's quite interesting because if you think about all the training we have within safety, whether it's management systems, very rarely do we get discussion on where should we use something that provides a degree of autonomy and discretion versus where where should we have something that is quite prescriptive. I don't think we talk enough about the right tool for the right job at the right time in safety. It tends to be, this is our style of process. Yeah, it's um, for, for a lot of people, it's going to be, that'd be very uncomfortable. And uh, that thing about not having the, having it locked down. So I'm thinking about people working at height or um, working in a, in a situation where the variables are weather, individuals, uh, time pressures, all the things that we know are, you know, the basic causes of uh, failures. So yeah, I think that's going to be, and, and I'm thinking about it in terms, not in terms of the practitioners, but you know, the managers that have been ingrained in this. You know, this is the way we do it. This is how we lift something. This is how we position something to let let not that have that sort of rule book or the competency thing. Well, let, let's try and explore that. So the examples that you've given. So a work at height is a high risk situation that should be defined. There should be clarity about for for the individuals about what is expected in terms of the method of work. But is is a method of lifting, you know, various types, does that need to be locked down to that extent? I, I don't know. I think that's to me is much more of guidance and frameworks. And I think it does come back to the level of risk that we have here. But I do think there is something about how we how we approach different sorts of risks. Well, I think in that scenario, I'm, I'm looking at it from a, a telecoms perspective, I suppose, was there's so many variables with, um, you know, the size of the, the dish that might be lifted, the weight determination, the anchor point, the equipment you can use, the equipment you've got. So actually, you can only really have a framework around it. So it's my process and, you know, procedures type thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's the that's a good good example, isn't it? That you, you work within that process or you work within that framework to make sure that you you keep it safe. So, you know, you, you drop zones and all those sorts of things. You don't say the drop zone here is this because you can't because it needs to be four times the height of the, the structure, for example. In some ways, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about agility versus rigidity. This idea that do we put more focus on you know, aviation is a really great example because you simply can't proceduralize for the hundreds of situations that can happen in a cockpit. I wonder actually whether we got similar examples in the world of work where we need to put more focus on how we train people to make decisions. What is the decision making process that they go about as opposed to trying to prescribe quite a, a, a very narrow definition Again, I'm not offering any solutions. I'm just challenging this idea that we have within certain management systems that you have a defined process that sets a single best way to use kind of FW Taylor and and scientific management concepts. And then that's the way it will be, as opposed to say, well, do we need to understand the decision making process and put more focus on training individuals to understand the parameters that could affect that? Yeah, and I think the just the, the sort of pick up on the training piece. Training doesn't necessarily have to be sitting in a classroom doing something. It's about somebody explaining, demonstrating, imitating practice, which is like a management skill. You know, to you know, like a supervisor manager level is having that understanding of, you know, what we used to call like sitting next to Nelly. You know, that's how I learned how to use a slicing machine when I first started work was that somebody showed me how to do it. I didn't ever touch the thing. I wasn't allowed to because I was 16. Um, but at some point, you know, they explained to me, demonstrated it, I imitated it, and then I went off and they watched me as I did it safely. So, when, when Before the pandemic, one of the things that um, I did when I was with LR, it's probably one of the, 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 the proudest points I had, we started looking at our data 
for high risk activity, for driving, for confined space, for work at height. And we did a lot of transferring over water. We had a lot of marine surveyors who were transferring between vessels. And so you have to climb up these ladders. It's a technique that hasn't changed in hundreds of years. And it's by definition, it's, it's, it's risky because if they fall, they fall into the water. And it's, an, it's a problem that can only be resolved by sector design. And we looked at the data um, and we did a fair bit of study. We went out and listened to people. And actually what we found out is the training wasn't good enough. So we set up a whole program of training schools and put them through week-long training. Now, this idea of technical training schools is quite old school, but actually it was, from an employee perspective, it's the most popular thing that I, I did when I was there. I was quite amazed. We put thousands into training, but this particular program that got uh, a lot of support across the organization got a huge amount of feedback because they were saying, I can touch and feel the risk in a safe environment. And I've been doing this for 30 years and I've never had proper training for it was a feedback we constantly get. So I, I think there is something here which goes back, it's a similar to the to, to the shop floor walk rounds you were talking about before, which is, are we missing some things that we know work, like training people how to technically do their work and, and teaching them in, in proper trade school conditions and going to understand from their work? Are we getting too caught up in process and procedure and virtual reality training and thinking actually it's touching and feeling the risk that's really effective? So what else came out of your reflections? I think one of the things that we've kind of touched on already is about listening versus telling. We've had two years where most safety people, sorry, many safety people have been working from home um, and they've been detached from their frontline staff. So it's very difficult to actually be telling, you know, when I was um, in my former role or even in the role I'm now, it's very difficult for me to tell people when I can't travel, um, when I can't be there. So this idea about listening from frontline personnel as opposed to being kind of the subject matter expert asking the curious questions and actually trying to to draw out from people about listening so i think that 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 is something for us to think about um about how much we are learning and listening from from frontline personnel and i think in just in in conclusion i would say equally this idea about capacity i think thinking about capacity within organizations where there is for how, how quickly we can create agility in in the case of many organizations capacity was the ability to work from home, um, understanding where the, where the capacity constraints are for, for business continuity disaster recovery, I think is, is something we need, we need to revisit. Great. So um, come, to the, come to the point where that review's unearthed many things about how organisations can improve, how they can reflect, how they maybe want to see, the, see how they operate. So it's a, it's a cultural thing because there's quite a lot of, um, if, you're, if you're moving from this control and you know command type approach to more about being able to make decisions based on understanding and knowledge and having support so if something does go wrong that it's not as this maybe goes back to this just culture um angle so i think that's really really interesting and and uh, hopefully the listeners pick up on that and they can start to work on that as part of their approach but i suppose as a practitioner you know, where, where do you where would you start here? Because these are all these are all concepts that you might want to go and test back in your organisation. And how would you go about doing that? And how, how are you going about it, James? Well, I think if we pick some of them up, so the, we talked about the idea about rules versus principles. I think that is certainly something that can be applied to to for pra practitioners to actually challenge the idea that everything has to have a standard method, um, which is a defined procedure telling us how we could do it. There may be different ways to actually have a discussion about within risk, which where you allow boundaries and flexibility and where you define a single method. I think the second thing is 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 about thinking about what is there which provides support to people, but we know may not necessarily be evidential. Um, I think there are other examples within organisations of that that we do for safety and, and there's even a term for it called security theatrics or the theater of security and actually thinking 
are there things that we would necessarily not support, but actually need to be there, provide support? It's quite a bit of well-being uh, activity in that space. Um, but I think fundamentally, I would say, Mike, from all of this, it's about reconnecting with frontline personnel and really thinking about how much our systems, our processes, even to your point on consultation, is aiding and helping us learn or actually is something that is perhaps a barrier to do so. Um, the examples that you've cited about learning from frontline personnel, um, I think is a, just a fantastic example. I'd love to see more organizations do more of that and perhaps question a bit more about what metrics and data are telling them. Yeah, that's great. So does it sort of go back to, um, I saw from your credentials that you did your Nebelsch diploma at some point in the past and I used to be involved in delivering it uh, way back when. Is there somewhere that this sort of approach needs to be fed in? Is this about new thinking? Is, this, is it accepted thinking? I think it's about understanding that how we approach safety, you know, there isn't a single best way. There is a dominant narrative within safety at the moment, which is about management systems and the approach of systems. And I think for practitioners, it's about challenging some of those ideas and arguments that there may be different ways to do safety that isn't based purely on, on, on systems and processes. There are some old school techniques of practical training, going to learn from the front line, listening, being curious, that are perhaps mentioned in the standards, but not don't necessarily come through. What comes through really clearly and what, what gets audited and recommended is more process and procedure as opposed to to, to frontline. And um, I think when we first met, you and I was sort of sitting in head office and we'd got all our gongs on the wall. You know, we got our 9,000, 9,001, 9, 2015. We got our, um, you know, 1,400 uh, ISOs and all that good stuff and the 45,001. You know, so we're, we're as, a, as an organisation ourselves are like this is how we have to do things but I think what one just as a an example was we kicked back against what was the um the quality standard at the time and we were being pushed to make us fit something which didn't fit our organization and um it was quite an interesting dynamic that went on but we got our way in the end because we had processes and we did things in a certain way and we said well there you go audit that if you were thinking about giving us it and and hey ho you know 9001 2015 came about and that's what it's all about you know so it's not about having this sort of like you have to have this part of the schedule da, 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 da. yeah there's a lot within safety that is done because either the supply chain requires us to do it in the kind of the the blue tape concept or because we think that that is you know what is required the idea of challenging some of this i've been reading a lot about how organizations adopt standards and why they adopt them and there can be various reasons to that and the idea of challenging some of the things that are there and saying and focusing more on the outcome that you want to achieve necessarily than the process i think is is something i would encourage everybody to do there's a diversity in in commercial and in innovation why isn't there an equal diversity in safety? Why aren't there 25 ways of doing safety that are ones of management systems, which is great for some businesses. One looks very different. Why, why isn't there a multiple rainbow of different types of safety? Yeah, there's, there's lots here and it's really good that uh, we've been able to talk about it. One thing just as a, from a selfish point of view, the question about um, providing an international approach so somebody that's going to be expanding into the US, for example, or um, that's their next area of expansion. How, how do you deal with those different cultures where language is slightly different and an approach might be different because they're not necessarily in the same sort of, they're not as sophisticated in terms of the way that they understand health and safety? How, do, how have you gone about that in your past just to share with, uh, with the audience? Yeah, I think um, it's a different way not you know it's it's a different way of approaching safety so in the us it's it's still very rules based it doesn't mean that it's any better or worse than it is in europe but it's a very different approach so code and rules state and federal requirements are still reign quite significantly and employment structures you need to understand not just safety but actually employment structures that is a big factor in the us because many states are employment at will so the message i would say to anybody who's expanding is is understand the economic environment as well as trying to understand some of the risk factors 
Um, and then I think when you perhaps go east rather than necessarily go west, it's a very agile and fast paced environment in China. Uh, so I'll give you one example. When I went to a Chinese shipyard, I showed them a, a, a near miss reporting system that we we had recently purchased from one of these um, organizations uh, which provides EHS software and I kind of shared the money and I showed them the the tool and how it worked and they were all very impressed and I went back about three three months later and they had developed their own tool it was on WeChat um, it was better than the tool that I had and they had done it for about eight thousand dollars and I said to them what about data privacy and what about this and what do they said doesn't really you know that's not an issue for us so things move very very quickly in other geographies and there may be a different kind of focus there um, and technology you know can leapfrog um, I went to one uh, shipyard in China and they were really big on technology so everybody went on board this vessel had an emergency alarm so I guess the second thing is just understand the context in which you're working because that has a huge impact in, in shaping safety. I think that's um, a good, good learning, isn't it, from the point of view of um, it's, it, it, there are differences and you need to recognise that and um, you know understand that if you have a framework, how does the framework fit within that culture? And there's certain things which might need to be varied because of that, but you, you are trying to meet your own intent or the intent of pre- preventing harm, but there's different ways of doing it. Yes, I think if you if you go in with an idea about safety culture into Asia and say, this is my idea of safety culture, uh, you will find that it's very, it's still quite hierarchical compared to more, what we would perceive as more flat management structure. So concepts like speak up, um, stop work authority, the ability to actually to challenge ideas and, and to, um, from, from what is prescribed, they don't necessarily work as well because it, it, it is a different culture. We don't have safety culture, we have different culture. And so understanding the cultural norms in certain countries I think is missed over. So if I go as a practitioner to try and export my version of safety culture and all of the artifacts and ideas within it, I'm going to fail pretty quickly. Really good. Thanks, James. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag Risk Sleep Repeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com. 